listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 248. In this episode, we will be talking to game designers who are pioneering unionization in the tech sector. Before we start, we just want to give a quick plug to our Patreon. If you value the independent journalism that we produce here at Belabored and want to see more in-depth coverage of labor issues that most of the rest of the media ignores, please consider becoming one of our patrons. You can go to patreon.com slash belabored. And also a second announcement, Belabored is going to the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago from June 17th through the 19th. It's a big gathering of labor movement people from all over the world, and Belabored is going to be doing a live event there on Friday, June 17th at 5 p.m. To learn more about the conference, you can go to labornotes.org. And if you can't make it out there, registration is already closed, actually. Don't worry, we'll be featuring a recording of the Belabored live episode right here on the following Friday. June 24th. First, the news. In Thailand, a labor struggle between garment worker unions and multinationals has exposed massive wage theft in the lingerie industry. And the workers last week won 281 million baht, or $8.3 million in compensation. More than 1,250 workers at the Brilliant Alliance factory were all laid off when their factory shuttered back in 2021 as part of a wave of factory closures across Asia when the pandemic had led to huge disruptions in global apparel supply chains. The workers sewed bras for Victoria's Secret, Lane Bryant, and Torrid brands, and many had been longtime employees, represented by the Triumph International Union. The abrupt factory closure would normally result in the payment of severance under Thai law. And the owners of the factory, the Hong Kong-based Clover Group, were actually ordered to pay the worker severance within a month following the closure. But the Clover Group maintained that it was broke and said workers might have to wait a decade for their severance. Then two U.S.-based international labor rights organizations, the Worker Rights Consortium and Solidarity Center, helped organize a campaign to get Clover and the multinational brands to pay up. After months of pressuring Victoria's Secret to finance the severance payments, according to the Solidarity Center, the lingerie giant has finally agreed to pay the workers their owed wages through a loan arrangement with Clover. The settlement is a rare victory for a workforce that has been devastated by canceled orders and factory closures throughout the pandemic. And advocates hope that the Victoria's Secret case might set a precedent for ensuring that workers harmed by pandemic-induced economic disruptions might be made whole. David Welsh, Thailand Country Director for Solidarity Center, says the campaign shows that some measure of economic justice is possible for the aggrieved workers, but also reveals the systemic poverty and precarity that besets garment workers across the global south. This is historic on a number of fronts. The background is, I mean, first, the settlement is the largest of its kind, not just in Thailand, but in the global garment industry. Uh, The Brilliant Alliance Thailand Workers, over 1,250 of them, uh, were laid off unceremoniously in March 2021. Uh, This is not unusual, what we've seen historically in the garment sector, but just exacerbated completely around the sort of global industry uh, when COVID struck was uh, factories shutting down, brands pulling out without paying any of their legal obligations. So in this case, once again, the workers over 1,000 of them, uh, were left high and dry. Um, the anomaly here, there were two of them. One was that, that the lifetime of a, glo- of a garment worker uh, throughout the world really is, you know, five to ten years. This factory is a legendary factory in Thailand, so 
many of the workers themselves involved in this struggle had been in the factory for 15, some, some 20 years. The second anomaly is that I don't want to give them too much credit, but uh, this was unusual in that the Thai government and the Thai judiciary, rather than allow the factory and by association uh, the brand to simply cut and run, um, they ruled in favor of the workers and ordered the factory to pay up. And because of the longevity of many of the workers at the factory and the longevity of the factory itself, what was owed legally at the time was over $7 million. So a huge, huge amount. This sort of engendered an initial outreach to brands, to the factory that this should be done. Uh, Months went by, months went by. Uh, We began preliminary sort of uh, media on it and began gathering support internationally. Uh, I should credit um, a number of groups who assisted us in this and assisted the union, but in particular the Worker Rights Consortium were very much engaged with us in tandem with negotiations with the brands throughout. Um, Pressure built on a number of fronts. One, and there are a number of, the reason I think this could be a model is that it wasn't simply pressure on the brands and international campaign, although that was a large part of it. Um, The... A lot was done on the domestic front. So a domestic legal case, um, meetings, confidential and public with the government at a very, very high level, the government of Thailand. And things began to to sort of break, I would say, three or four months ago. I want to name the brands as well. This For American listeners, this is very much an American case in many ways. The three brands involved in this factory and the supply chain is going almost, almost exclusively to the U.S. were Victoria's Secret and then two brands that are lesser known but in their markets, prominent. One is Lane Bryant. The other is Torrid, both U.S. brands, both owned by the same private equity group called Sycamore Partners. Those owned by the private equity group Sycamore Partners did absolutely nothing for these workers. But I should give a nod to Victoria's Secret, who eventually, though not initially, came into the negotiations and, as of three or four months ago, committed to paying. Now, the, the other interesting caveat here is that they committed to paying initially what was owed legally, or what they deemed was owed legally, just over $7 million. But under Thai law, every month that you are in violation of uh, severance payment, particularly when there's a court order, as was the case here, there is an interest accumulated. So by the time the negotiations were settled, an additional million-plus dollars was owed. So this is a huge victory and a huge precedent because the final settlement uh, for these workers was eight point, depending on the depending on the fluctuating um conversion rate, uh, $8.3, $8.4 million. So it's historic in the sense that the brand was 100% engaged. They footed the bill. They're referring to it as a, as a loan to a clo- the Clover Group, which is um, ostensibly the, the group that owned uh, the factory. Uh, Clover Group shut down, claimed bankruptcy. Not a brilliant reorganization in the sense that they reconvened under something called Clover Global, uh, under the same corporate headquarters in Hong Kong with, with the same corporate structure. Uh, and they are very much a part of the global uh, garment supply chain. So there are a number of brands linked with them. Uh, and so it be- became increasingly easy to get leverage um, both over them and the brands, given their prominence. I would very much hope that other governments, whether the Cambodian government, the Bangladeshi government, others, uh, where the garment industry dominates, I don't want to give them too much credit, as I said earlier, but they certainly didn't shy away from basically ordering the factory and or the brand to pay what was legally owed. And and so, um, you know, this this there was confidentiality around 
uh, the agreement. The agreement was struck roughly four weeks ago. We wanted to keep it uh, on the down low until we could be assured uh, that every worker involved uh, had exactly what was owed to them, that it was safely in the bank. Um, but I think this is something that is worthy of note. It's drawn huge media attention here in Thailand and internationally, and I very much hope it sets precedent for the hundreds, if not thousands, of cases going forward. You mentioned the other countries um, where the garment industry has uh, been devastated by the pandemic, and yeah. uh, and there are a lot of workers um, who are owed a lot of wages. Um, what's what's the status of all of those other workers? Because I know that there have been various groups yeah. campaigning for workers in Bangladesh yeah. and elsewhere. And uh, it doesn't seem like there is a lot of movement uh, from the corporations. Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned the Worker Rights Consortium was being helpful. Other groups were involved as well, Clean Clothes Campaign. Uh, but also, I mean, what you're, what you're referring to is actually, I mean, the, the initiative is called Pay Your Workers. And this, this followed really on the onset of COVID when it became clear that uh, brands not only were neglecting their obligations, but almost taking advantage of COVID to essentially avoid any any of what they what was legally due to workers, certainly during the height of the pandemic. So, um, to answer your question, it's it's being done in an ad hoc manner. There's no settlement that I'm aware of that that reaches what was achieved with the Victoria's Secret Brilliant Alliance Thailand case. But I think it just speaks to when I said it sets a precedent. It sort of speaks to the fact that brands can be forced to pay; they will pay, but that we need something that isn't ad hoc and sort of uh, case by case. Uh, something sort of more structural, uh, more macro needs to take place. And that, you know, it's, we would hope a brand like Victoria's Secret would be an industry leader here. You know, it, it highlights the legal fiction that these multinational brands, so many of them American, are passive investors, uh, would like to do what they can for trade union rights and worker rights, but are, are simply like us and, uh, and help, us to, help us to get involved. Where in fact, it is they who are setting the targets, they who are setting the standards, um, and very much they who are dominating the whole scheme, which is one that where a living wage is completely absent and where worker rights abuses and trade union rights abuses are the norm. I mean, that that's sort of the <laughs> that's the backdrop to all of this, right? I mean, we're still operating within a labor system that fundamentally doesn't pay its workers enough to live on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so when consumers, I mean, it's, it's awkward because uh, we've done a lot of these cases uh, in various countries and uh, young activists or students or consumers reach me and sort of saying, what should we do? Should we boycott this or that brand? What should we do? And so something like the pay your workers campaign, which is a macro approach calling on all brands, a sort of global fund uh, type structure uh, that would alleviate or do much to alleviate most of these situations is one way to do it. Because, um, I mean, the, the trick of the garment industry globally is that I would say 16 to 20 large brands dominate the entire sector. Uh, some are, you know, transparently, and in some ways this is more refreshing to work with, they're transparently anti-worker, anti-union, and so you know what you're dealing with. Others give the impression they're primarily invested in the market to promote worker rights, and if they make any money on the side, that's great. Both are, you know, nonsense, obviously, but the, the, the game is as long as no one brand goes the extra mile to do the right thing in its factories and supply chain, no one else has to either. And so clearly uh, this isn't going to happen overnight, but clearly a macro approach that at least, you know, as I said, 15 to 20 of the major brands, American and European buy into to ensure that um, 
there is a structural approach, not just country by country or regionally, but even globally, because it really is the same model throughout the world, exporting to exactly the same markets with the same players and the same conditions. I'd be remiss not to take this opportunity. The other, the other notion is that we need international legal mechanisms to draw brands in so that workers can seek justice directly against brands and in different, uh, in different venues, whether it's the country of incorporation um, or, or what have you. You know, when, when things go wrong in private commercial settings, international business arbitration kicks in and, uh, you know, businesses sort that out what it gets the other. Um, the only relationship where that currently is not the case internationally is the worker or union to multinational or business context, which is outrageous because that's where most of the suffering is done. So that really is another another angle that needs to be highlighted here as well. That was David Welsh, Thailand Country Director for the Solidarity Center. By now, I'm pretty sure none of our listeners have missed the news that the Supreme Court plans to overturn Roe v. Wade, the decision that made abortion legal in the United States. And for the last two episodes, we have made the case that this is a labor issue. So when I learned that workers at Planned Parenthood North Central States, which covers clinics in Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Nebraska, had gone public with their union drive with SEIU Healthcare Minnesota and Iowa, I knew we had to talk to them for this week's show. I wrote about a Planned Parenthood union drive in my book, Work Won't Love You Back, as these workers are the ultimate example of mission-driven workers who put their patients before themselves and face protests and the threat of violence just for providing necessary care. These workers announced their union drive and will be going to an election, as Planned Parenthood North Central has not voluntarily recognized them. And I spoke with one of these workers about her job and why now is an especially important time for clinic workers to unionize. So, hi, can I get you to start out by introducing yourself to our listeners a little bit? Yes. Um, so, my name is Grace, um, and I am a nurse at Planned Parenthood in Minnesota. I am actually a float nurse for Planned Parenthood. Um, so, I get to um, fill in at different health centers throughout the Twin Cities and also greater Minnesota. And when I'm not a nurse, I'm a cat mom and a mom to a little boy <laughs> and a wife as well. Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit more about sort of what your day-to-day is? I mean, I imagine if you're floating, it's it's a bit different from day-to-day. But like, tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah. So I do get a variety of days depending on the clinic um, that I'm at, which I really appreciate. I get to see a variety of different clientele and provide different services between family planning and abortion care. So a typical day, you know, we get there, I clock in, I open the clinic um, with other support staff and kind of hit the ground running every day. That is across the board, no matter what clinic we're at. Um, it is always very busy. <laughs> I'm sure. So tell us, because we are obviously talking today because you're part of the effort to unionize the Planned Parenthoods in, in that area. Yeah. Tell us about the union drive and, and what the workers' needs are in this moment. Yeah, so we went public uh, a week ago. We filed with the NLRB one week ago today. Um, and the unionizing efforts have actually been underway for about 11 months. We need a voice. We've always needed a voice in a union. Um, but especially now, we are 
planning to ramp up our services, especially in Minnesota with um, Roe versus Wade being under attack and in the balances here. Um, So we really need our voices, especially at the clinic level, but in all departments um, to be heard. We need a seat at the table. Oftentimes there are decisions made by a very small group of people who are at the top and they don't really know how those decisions look in action. So really, we just want to have a seat at the table and we would like to, you know, be heard about the decisions that affect us every day and ultimately our patients, because everyone who works for Planned Parenthood works for the mission to serve their patients. And yeah, it's, it's a passion project, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, I imagine as a nurse, you have lots of options of where you could work, right? Especially right now, the nursing shortage is only getting more intense. Yes. I feel particularly um, like this draw to Planned Parenthood. I actually graduated in 2020 during the pandemic and Planned Parenthood is my first nursing job. I have big dreams of being a midwife someday. Um, so being able to have my first nursing job in a place that fights for reproductive justice is like a soul, my, you know, a soul match. Um, but there are other options. There are definitely better paying jobs, uh, not to be blunt, but, um, there as a nurse, there are, there are definitely options, but for me, having my passion and what I do is why I work at Planned Parenthood. It's why we work at Planned Parenthood. So to have such decisions made without having a voice, it's it's painful. Sometimes we're scheduled for a shift and you're working two, three hours past your shift because of how things are scheduled or being short staff and not having support in reworking things like that. Just just small small things where that could make a big impact on the workers that work every day in the clinics. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I think about a lot is this sort of twin pressure, right? That you because you believe in the mission of the place you work, there's this extra pressure to not make any demands for yourself. Yes, <laughs> that is um, to almost to a fault. That is what I see my colleagues doing day in and day out. Um, and the thing is, we are still people outside of our FTE that we have signed on to do. We are parents, siblings, partners, athletes, you know, people have other lives and it's not fair to have to sacrifice all of yourself when, I mean, like your book says, your job won't let you back. (laughs) Not that I have any. I mean. (laughs) No, but I think in, in this moment in particular, you know, there may be some pushback on all of you saying that like in this moment when Roe is, is probably going to disappear that like, this is not the moment. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I would agree with you in saying that this is exactly the moment. But I wonder, yeah, if you could talk about that in particular in in this, I mean, Roe has been under threat my entire life, but like this moment where the thing we've been, you know, 
told to fear for our entire lives is, is about to happen. Um, yeah, the extra pressures on, on all of you must be immense. It is. And, you know, it's really disheartening. I have only not been with Planned Parenthood for a year. And I am sort of a senior staff to where I am training in newer staff. And we can't do that right now. We cannot burn out the people who want to work for Planned Parenthood, whose passion is to is to the mission and to the people and to providing access to healthcare as all people need, especially people with uteruses. We need those people and we can't be having the turnover that we do. We have the turnover that we do because people aren't being heard. And for years, people have said, we're working on it. We're working on it. And um, we have just had some really cool changes to some scheduling things. And in the clinic, we feel that relief. But to hear that that's been, that small change has taken almost 16 years by some accounts is just, it's unfathomable. Our training and development team is, <laughs> is, constantly training and developing, um, training new people in because we can't keep the people that, that want to be there because there's their, their complaints are falling on deaf ears. And we need, we need to bolster up our staff and uplift all of these voices so that we can provide abortion care and family planning services. When we, especially in Minnesota, all of our affiliate matters, but Minnesota is surrounded by trigger states. So we are specifically preparing to ramp up our abortion services for when we have people hopefully traveling to be able to get that much needed health care. Yeah. And for our listeners who might not know what trigger states are, can you explain what that is? Yes. So trigger state basically means that once Roe versus Wade is overturned, they will no longer offer abortion services. It is in their laws that abortions are unconstitutional. And the only reason that they were allowed to happen was because of the federal protection that Roe allotted. Yeah. So, right. So you're looking at some people around the area, you know, possibly being out of a job and, and then where you are, the pressure being really increased because you're going to be providing care for people outside of your you know, normal community, right? That it's going to be expanding. And it's already, it, we're already, abortion services are already spread thin. We're already cutting hours and um, cutting days that we're offering it just because we don't have the staff. We don't have the staff because the staff are being burned out at just unprecedented rates. And the things that are happening in the clinics aren't sustainable. So we just, we want to be heard. And we, you know, at the end of the day, we're on the same side. We're on the same side as the executive team. It's just that they're an executive team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I would just kind of finally say, I haven't looked at fundraising numbers, but I imagine that um, Planned Parenthood has probably seen an increase in donations since the the draft decision dropped. And so um, I think a lot of people listening who might have given would really hope that that money is going to expand services on the ground and to support workers like you. Yeah, 
Um, there have been some donations um, and how they're spread. I definitely am not specifically sure about, but there have been donations. Um, I know that we, at least in, again, I can only speak to my portion of the affiliate specifically, which is Minnesota, but we are um, Planned Parenthood North Central States, which encompasses um, a region, including Iowa and Nebraska, South Dakota. But <laughs> the, do, there have been some big donations for sure that have been publicly made, um, as well as personal donations. You know, people maybe aren't aware, but we are mostly funded by the five, ten, fifty dollar donations that people leave in clinic. Um, so definitely, we do have people. Our, our clients come in and they ask, you know, are you going to be staying open? Oh, I'm so happy. We always are assuring people, like we are here, we are not going anywhere. Um, no matter what happens, we are going to bend and continue to serve our patients because that is our passion project. But there have been donations and we would like to see the same thing, you know, spread equally amongst all of our departments and not have people leave for other opportunities that their heart may not be in. Great. And anything else you would like to share before I let you go off to your very long work day. <laughs> um, I, I just want to say that we are immensely grateful and energized by the amount of support that we are seeing. Um, I'm part of the organizing committee and um, we are just seeing so much an outpouring of support since we've gotten public just a week ago. So having had, um, you know, almost the secret society for so long and now being public and just so much love and so much support, we are just so eternally grateful for everyone. And, you know, Planned Parenthood is here to stay and we're going to keep doing what we do. So thank you. That was Grace, a Planned Parenthood nurse from Minnesota and part of the union drive to join SEIU Healthcare Minnesota and Iowa. The rise of gig work in the digital age has created new challenges for workers' rights across the country. For people who work for digital platforms like Uber, TaskRabbit, or DoorDash, the original promise of the so-called gig economy, that workers would be self-employed and have more freedom to work on their own terms, has been eclipsed by the lack of basic protections and rights that results from workers being classified as so-called non-employees. Since they are considered contractors rather than employees, gig workers often find themselves with the worst of both worlds. They are shut out of federal and state labor protections that only go to officially classified employees, such as Social Security and minimum wage standards, but they're also at the mercy of their app, which tightly controls their work opportunities, working conditions, and earnings, just like a regular boss, despite the fact that the law says that they are self-employed. The Economic Policy Institute has just published a survey of digital gig workers that reveals the deep instability that plagues them, even compared to other low-wage workers. EPI surveyed two groups of workers. One was platform-based gig workers with apps like Uber and Instacart, and the other was made up of service workers who were formally classified as W-2 employees with major corporations like Kroger and Walmart. The survey found that, quote, more than a quarter of gig workers, or 29%, earned less than the state minimum wage that would likely be applicable were they a W-2-based employee, unquote. For the regular service workers they sampled, only 1% earned below minimum wage in their states. 
EPI also notes that, quote, one reason for the high share of sub-minimum wage work among gig workers is that gig workers are not being paid for some work hours. More than three out of every five gig workers, or 62%, had not been paid for their work on the job at least once. In addition, quote, nearly one-third of gig workers did not pay the full amount of gas, oil, or electric utility bills in the last month. The corresponding percentage for W-2 service sector workers is 17%. Relative to W-2 service sector workers, gig workers were significantly more likely to report it was very difficult to cover expenses and pay bills, unquote. While app-based gigs are generally intended to be short-term jobs, the degree of turnover indicated by the survey suggests that the harsh conditions are pushing people out of their jobs at a fast rate, as, quote, more than half of these workers intend to find a new job in the next three months, unquote. API concludes that federal action is needed to address the legal inequities and degraded working conditions that gig workers disproportionately face. The report stresses the need for, quote, enforcement of existing federal wage and hour laws. The Department of Labor must hold companies accountable for misclassification and ensure that workers have access to fundamental workplace protections guaranteed them under federal law, unquote. The PRO Act, the pro-labor legislation that has been floating around in Congress for a few years now, would apply a strict legal test to determine whether gig workers are in effect performing work that should qualify them as employees of their apps rather than independent contractors. The test is similar to the gig work law that was passed in California earlier. The PRO Act would also make it easier to form or join a union, and that's especially important for digital app-based workers because the very nature of the platform makes it hard for workers to connect with each other, to organize, and to collectively challenge the company's policies and practices. The fact that all of their interactions with the platform are mediated through a proprietary app further exacerbates the asymmetry of power between the gig workers and the gig company. So these workers' exclusion from union rights and worker protections isn't a bug, it's actually a feature. As Michelle was just saying, gig workers around the country make peanuts and are treated horribly. What's more, we've seen too many bad deals cut with gig companies that justify their business model and accept the worker misclassification at the heart of it. But there are attempts to improve the lot of gig workers by law, and one of those just passed in Seattle. The Seattle City Council just voted 9-0 to to pass part of the pay-up policy into law, which, according to Working Washington, quote, will ensure gig workers on apps like DoorDash, Instacart, GoPuff, Handy, and Amazon Flex are paid at least minimum wage after expenses with tips on top, flexibility rights, and transparency protections. This law takes the first few steps to finally recognize and respect gig workers' humanity, says Carmen Figueroa, Grubhub worker, in a release from Working Washington. Passing pay up means I can earn a wage in which I can thrive and flourish in society. I'm one of thousands of people with hidden disabilities who depend on gig work to make a living. By passing pay up, Seattle City Council has finally shown that we are not disposable and should not be exploited, end quote. The policy was, of course, viciously opposed by DoorDash, Instacart, Uber, and other companies, which poured money into campaigns to stop the legislation from passing. Meanwhile, a recent report from Working Washington found that Seattle gig workers currently average pay of just $9.58 an hour after expenses, with 92% of jobs paying less than minimum wage, and that this policy will provide a direct economic boost of more than $79 million. Seattle's minimum wage, you know, that one that was one of the first to go to $15 an hour, is currently $17.27 an hour, and the policy requires each job on the apps pay at least $0.38 per minute of engaged time, which includes an extra 12% to account for associated costs of gig work, like payroll taxes, etc., 
an extra 17% to account for associated time, like time spent reviewing offers or communicating with support in between jobs, and at least 64 cents per mile of engaged miles. For any job where driving is required, workers need to be compensated for their mileage costs. And the law will require tips to be on top of pay, not to be factored into these calculations. It also maintains the so-called flexibility that the apps claim workers value but often don't actually allow. It cements the right to reject or accept offers without penalty, the right to work when workers choose and log on and off as they please. That means the apps can't require a maximum or minimum number of hours or punish workers for missing shifts. And it requires no penalties for canceling a job with cause. It also requires transparency in the app. The workers must be told the estimated time to complete the job, the estimated mileage to complete the job, the locations of the work, and the guaranteed pay and any upfront tips. The law is not perfect, of course. It still requires all of these hair-splitting calculations and cents per minute rather than, you know, dollars per hour. And it has to work within the confines of state law that already enshrined independent contractor status for rideshare drivers. It also, at the last minute, carved out workers on so-called marketplace apps like TaskRabbit and Rover. But it is not the end for Seattle gig workers who are looking ahead to more organizing for forthcoming policies that would include those other apps and also address unwarranted deactivation, discrimination and harassment, bathroom access, you know, basic stuff like that. Last week, a group of quality assurance test workers at Raven Software, a division of major video games company Activision Blizzard, voted to unionize, marking one of the first games company unions in the United States and a big inroad into a company that has long been a target of people organizing in and around video games. The games industry has gone from a dream job for many to a nightmare, an industry rife with reports of frat boy culture, ridiculously long hours, and sex and race discrimination. And the so-called QA testers are often at the bottom rung of the industry, facing the worst of all of this. So it is both poetic justice and also perhaps understandable that they would be some of the first to unionize. But what's going on with games and tech in general? Today, we're joined by Emma Kinema, senior campaign lead at Code CWA, the union that the Raven workers voted to join, to talk all things gaming and organizing. To start off with, tell us what just happened at Raven Software. Yeah, well, we essentially had a historic win at Raven Software. Um, a department of QA testers, quality assurance testers, won the first certified union of video game workers in the kind of mainstream blockbuster AAA games industry. And it's uh, really, really exciting. It comes after months and months of, you know, the workers, you know, protesting, sending letters to management, going on strike for several weeks. Um, and then, of course, you know, filing for union certification and winning it, uh, even in the face of a bunch of company retaliation and pressure and, uh, you know, of course, nonsense at the National Labor Relations Board. So it's very exciting. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about this specific section like what is raven software in the the framework of activision blizzard which is obviously a massive company and what is it that these workers do what do they do and what were their sort of specific complaints and demands raven is a studio within the broader umbrella of activision blizzard king which is one of the kind of bigger juggernaut companies in the games industry um, you know, it's responsible for titles like Call of Duty and things like Overwatch and World of Warcraft and, you know, all kinds of different really popular games. 
And so Raven, you know, primarily is based around Call of Duty um, and the workers in the QA department, they're responsible for essentially making sure that software that goes out to the public to be played is of a good enough caliber, you know, testing the software for any issues or bugs or glitches. Um, In fact, this is actually a job that I've done before personally. And although it's kind of typically treated as, you know, a lesser role in the industry and, uh, you know, ultimately people are usually uh, facing job instability and poor conditions, it's actually a, a very crucial role in our, you know, industry. And frankly, uh, no company would be successful without their QA testers. And it's absolutely essential to the kind of high level of quality and excellence that a lot of these massive companies really expect from their games uh, to be so successful. Yeah. And so that just means just for real clarity, you're playing these games over and over and over again, sometimes for 12, 14 hours in a row. I would maybe not even use the word playing personally. Yeah, exactly. Um, to when get a sense of it. Play after the second <laughs> round, the fifth, the 14th? Yeah. I mean, also, like, you know, sometimes QA testers, you know, we're going to be assigned to going to a certain level in a game and just bashing into every single wall and every single door or like clicking this button a thousand times to see if we can break how the menu works or what have you. I would really not describe that as playing personally. And um, it can be kind of both in a way, a very mind numbing job. It can be really kind of an alienating role, but also it's a very interesting one. It requires a deep knowledge of just like all the different skill sets and all the different components that make our games, uh, which I would argue it's the most essentially complicated art medium because you've got engineers and designers, musicians, writers, localization, QA, um, you know, all sorts of different talents, you know, uh, and a QA tester really has to be able to understand all those different components and aspects and play at the seams of where all those things interact and find the weakest points of the software and make sure we're highlighting it so you know the artists or the developers or what have you can go and actually fix the problems we find. So again, it's it's a role where folks usually aren't treated with a lot of respect. People don't see it as a craft or a real discipline, but it really, really is. It requires a lot of you know really qualitative experience with games and with the production of games, and uh, you know it, it can be kind of like a puzzle. You know, really trying to piece out how the guts of this software really works and, and messing at the edges of things. And of course, you're looking for something that may not be there, right? If you're right. trying to find bugs, you you may not find any, which means like the company is happy, but also you are probably incredibly frustrated. And, could, and sometimes, you know, you stumble upon really elusive bugs. Uh, you know, one of the really tricky things about being a QA tester is it's not just enough to find problems. You have to be able to reproduce it, like mm. scientifically. You have to be able to provide the engineer, here's exactly the steps I did that reproduce it and you can go do it too. So you can figure out what exactly is breaking on the code end of things. Right. And so in that way, like it, it, it can be really hard. Like I've personally, you know, as a QA tester, there've been times where a really odd bug happens. We have no idea what caused it. Maybe it crashes the game and deletes your save file or something drastic, um, which obviously cannot be in the final software that goes out to players. And we might spend days trying to figure out what actually caused it, reviewing the footage of, what was happening right before that moment and trying different things, you know, uh, from one playthrough to another to figure out what actually was the thing specifically breaking it. And that can be really, really tricky work. 
So when the Raven workers started organizing, I know they they had a strike um, a while back. Um, tell us sort of what instigated that. What were the the issues that finally led people to say enough and walk out and then to, you know, come to this union vote? I mean, I think like most QA testers in our industry, um, you know, the big ones are always going to be, you know, pay uh, discrimination in terms of conditions and pay. Um, you know, of course, also job instability. QA testers face arguably the most unstable working conditions in the entire industry. Um, and, and also, I would argue a lack of respect. I think, you know, when it comes to organizing, people always talk about wages and benefits and improving, you know, these kind of concrete conditions. But I think also one of the things that goes really unspoken is the kind of respect and dignity that comes from being organized, from, you know, having that agency at work in a new way when you stand in union with your coworkers. And so I think, especially as QA testers who face just so much disrespect, so much uh, lack of regard for our craft, uh, I think you can't really separate that aspect of the work out as well. And, you know, ultimately I think these workers are really taking matters into their own hands and, and whether it's, you know, from striking or winning their union vote, they're demonstrating that, we are actually really valuable. The company cannot function without us and we deserve to be treated with, um, you know, respect and, you know, have rights at work that uh, we've been denied for far too long. Yeah. Yeah. So Activision Blizzard has been a target of people organizing in and around games for a while. So can you give us a little bit of history of sort of the, the, the shape of this company and why it is this constant target? Yeah, of course if you're thinking kind of externally in terms of players or just the broader society and how it views companies like Activision Blizzard, you know, these are giant corporate behemoths, right? These are like media and technology juggernauts and they play a massive role in our society. You know, whether it's the fact that millions and millions of people play games, it's one of the most dominant, most lucrative industries uh, in terms of media it's the most consumed form of media just by sheer number of hours. And, you know, so in that way, it has this outsized kind of presence in, you know, I think modern culture. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's absolutely an aspect to it, right? It draws a lot of attention. But I think also, um, you know, in terms of the, the workforce, Activision Blizzard, I think, is a interesting example of a, a macroeconomic trend we've been seeing in games over the last couple decades in particular of just mass consolidation um, of just absolutely, you know, gobbling up a lot of smaller studios and absorbing them into one larger corporate kind of monstrosity almost, um, you know, one at one point in time, Blizzard was its own thing. And then, you know, it was acquired and merged in with Activision. And so now it's Activision Blizzard. And then King is a mobile game company that, was wildly successful, you know, massive smash hits that, you know, probably everyone's grandma and aunt were playing even. And then that gets merged in. So it's Activision Blizzard King, right? Not to mention, of course, you know, just dozens of other smaller studios and outsourcing firms that were gobbled up and brought into this network. So within our industry, it plays a huge role that kind of spreads itself out across, you know, not just different companies it's acquired, but also different skill sets, different parts of our industry, different services, different models of games, different genres. And so how can you not pay attention to Activision Blizzard? How can you not 
you know, break down what's going on there and understanding the work conditions and kind of the economics behind why things are the way they are. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's really interesting. And now, of course, it's being acquired by Microsoft, right? That that this company sort of, every time it gets bad press, it, it sort of just gets bigger, or gets acquired <laughs> by something bigger, or like, you know, it just, it metastasizes in a different way. Yeah. And I think in that way, uh, I mean, those of us who've been in the industry uh, for the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, we've all talked about how, you know, your Activision, your Microsoft, your Sony, the EA, you know, all these companies, they're all like building these massive uh, consolidated enterprises, buying up all these other studios. And now even those ones are being consumed, right? It's not just big fish eating the small fish. There's now sharks. <laughs> and so Microsoft <laughs> absorbing, um, you know, Activision Blizzard in this proposed acquisition is a huge development in terms of the economic situation in our our you know, workforce and obviously how it impacts, you know, those of us who actually do the work that create these companies in these games that make billions and billions of dollars. And of course, you've now got Apple looking at massive acquisitions and games as well. So that's its own whole thing. Ultimately, what we're really seeing is a broader manifestation of the fact that game sits at the intersection of tech and media. And I would argue games really has the worst qualities of both of those industries, right? Um, the really tough project-based nature of media uh, and the kind of passion project type driven culture, but also the kind of ruthless kind of libertarian tech culture baked in there. And, um, you know, it's, it's really quite an interesting industry. And so what we're really seeing is, you know, not just these underlying kind of connections between tech and games and stuff, but really, Games is a part of the tech industry, period, right? The fact that Microsoft is acquiring Activision Blizzard and Apple wants to acquire Electronic Arts just makes it all the more obvious. And these things are not separate entities, which is why, you know, uh, at Code CWA, we connect tech and games and digital organizing because we see them as one. They are not separate things and they are deeply interwoven, not just with each other, but also even with like telecommunications and broader infrastructure work. Like if you think about... AT&T, which is, of course, its own massive tech and telecommunications and media juggernaut, which is the most, you know, organized uh, company for CWA members um, on the scale of tens of thousands. They have, uh, you know, properties in film and television production and software development and game development. You know, they've got hard infrastructure connecting, uh, you know, the (laughs) Internet and, and telephone communications and all kinds of stuff, right? It's this massive, ridiculous beast. And that's really how the industry is. There's not separate tech games industries or media industries or telecoms industries. If you look at like how finance experts talk about these things, they talk about it as one giant beast. It's the tech telco media industry. And so that's why we treat it as such. Yeah. And, and um, the consolidation is, is obviously something that's been going on in, in all of these places for a very long time. I'm, I, you know, I'm a journalist, obviously I know about that. Um, <laughs> but one of the interesting things of, I think is that Microsoft moved to acquire Activision Blizzard after um, being sued by California's Department of Fair Employment, alleging sexual harassment, gender discrimination, um, all of the I mean, well, frankly, all the stuff we're used to hearing about, unfortunately. 
but in that moment, that's when the, the, the sharks, as you said, um, move in to, to pick it up. Yeah. And, you know, I think <laughs> whatever one thinks about any of these companies, I think that timing of, you know, massive social and labor problems in a company, and yet it's being acquired by a larger company, um, really speaks volumes to like, at the end of the day, companies don't make decisions in the abstract. They don't make decisions based off of, you know, what would be nice for people and what would make for the best games and what would be best for, you know, our medium or anything like that. It's basic finance. It's basic economics. Even if, you know, there's a bit of a dumpster fire going on, you know, (laughs) the numbers still say, you know, the shareholders are going to be very, very happy by this acquisition, right? So it's still a no brainer. And I think my hope is increasingly, you know, those of us in our industry can see that reality a little bit more clearly um, as we continue to organize and continue to build a culture of organizing and care and, and union power. Yeah. And so we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, um, just after the story has come out that um, Microsoft, uh, which we call it president, said that the company will respect workers' rights to organize and plans to work collaboratively with organized labor organizations, which is, of course, right after the Raven workers already voted to unionize. But what do we make of, of this statement? Is it real? Is it, um, you know, is it attempt to smooth over some of this bad PR about the treatment of workers at these companies. Um, What is Microsoft trying to get ahead of here? Yeah, that's a good question. I can only offer, you know, certain speculation and things and, you know, based off of organizing experience with seeing how other companies and executives, you know, handle these kinds of moments. But I think Microsoft is really smart for doing this. In, in a number of ways, I think they see the writing on the wall in our industry, both in terms of tech and in terms of games. And they know that our industry will be organized. We are organizing it to the scale of thousands of workers, the vast majority of whom have collective bargaining rights, right? And, you know, not just at small startups, but also, you know, 600 tech workers at the New York Times, right? You know, we've got this first unit in AAA game development. We've got workers at, you know, Alphabet, you know, taking on the massive two-tier system that, you know, is just like systemic racism and exploitation baked into the company's structure economically, right? These things are happening and moving. And I think Microsoft wants to avoid being seen as, you know, the big bad guy. And I think um, it's also learning, I think, from the kind of Activision Blizzard experience a little bit in terms of like, You know, we saw Activision Blizzard throw everything in the book at these Raven QA testers. I mean, they tried everything to disrupt that organizing effort. They tried everything to derail that union certification vote. And, you know, I would anticipate that they're probably going to try to appeal that certification before we know it. So I think the fact that after all of that and all the millions of dollars on labor consultants and this and that, that the company has spent, the workers still organized because they care about each other. They care about their conditions. They care about our games and our medium and the quality of the work that we do. And they organized all the same. And I think Microsoft is seeing how futile it, it might be that even a corporate juggernaut can't take down, you know, a relatively small department of, you know, poorly treated, poorly paid QA testers, let alone what if we, you know, organize even on a larger scale. So 
I think it's intelligent in that kind of a way for Microsoft to make that move. And it's also signaling, I think, to the workers as, you know, the Activision Blizzard acquisition by Microsoft continues to move forward that, you know, they want to probably retain a lot of that talent in Activision Blizzard. They don't, you know, want to lose that in the acquisition, which is very, very common. And arguably our talent as game developers are why we're being acquired in the first place, right? Um, So, you know, I, I think they're trying to, lay a social foundation there as well to kind of smooth over, you know, labor corporate relations essentially ahead of time. Yeah. So I wanted to step back a little bit and talk about um, what's been happening in organizing and games specifically for the past few years. Um, You were involved in the beginnings of Game Workers Unite. Um, Can you tell us sort of the history of Game Workers Unite and its offshoots and how sort of how that got us here? Sure. Um, I think to be able to speak about Game Workers Unite and where we stand now with organizing in our industry, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, take a second to also point out that there has been elements of class struggle in the games industry and in the tech industry as well, ever since it was first in its most fledgling stages, right? Software engineers and, you know, researchers back in the 70s at public research institutions you know, right at the forefront of the development of the modern tech industry, we're organizing and we're engaged in labor struggle, right? In terms of games specifically, we had, um, you know, uh, decades ago, examples of workers not being credited appropriately for their work and those workers sneaking Easter eggs into their games where their names were there and, you know, things like that when the company wouldn't approve credits, you know, there's been a a long trajectory of these things, but it's always been kind of ad hoc here and there. And so I think, you know, the last 10 years in particular, I would say there's been a huge kind of change where there's much more press coverage and media coverage on, you know, conditions in our industry, you know, what's actually like to work in games, what, you know, the real mechanics of the industry are like. And so that's enabled, I think, a new phase to enter where it's not just individual reactions to different bad things here and there, but we can actually have a broader discussion around our conditions and kind of just the state of, you know, our industry and our medium. And so in 2018, you get the founding of Game Workers Unite, which I was involved with, but also many, many other wonderful people were. And to me, that really signaled kind of a change, at least amongst the workforce, at least amongst, you know, a certain class conscious element in the workforce that, we were ready to move from the discussion phase, from the complaining phase to the actual community building, training, education phase, where we're like trying to build the foundations for what could become a, a strong organizing movement. And, you know, I think Game Workers Unite's been kind of interesting. It's really, I think, fractured in some interesting ways. You know, many groups of people going off to, uh, you know, affiliate with, you know, broader existing unions in media or tech or IT or what have you. Um, some other, you know, kind of splintering off into smaller kind of community-based groups and things like that. But I think one of the the biggest, um, you know, positive things that still, you know, ripples out in our organizing today is really that kind of introduction of class language and class struggle as a concept in our industry and in our workforce over the past few years. And now that, you know, we're starting to see a lot of really exciting firsts in our industry, 
you know, the first successful game worker strike in 2020, which I helped organize um, through Code CWA. And, you know, we've got the first certified unit of video game workers at video games, you know, late last year. And now this, you know, big, uh, exciting moment with uh, the, the, the workers at Raven, we're starting to see the culmination, I think, of a lot of those years of experiences and training and community building and, and so on starting to come together. And so um, I think that's kind of what where my thoughts are when I look back on, you know, what the, you know, successes and failures of Game Workers Unite are is, you know, really the, the, the greatest value is laying that educational foundation for us, um, for all of us as workers in our industry. And um, I think everything is really benefiting and, and being built upon that kind of social fabric. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, as you were saying, the way that um, games combine all of these different forms of culture and creative work and like sort of hardcore programming work. And then this sort of grinding work of, of bashing at the whole thing and making sure that when it's all put together, it works. <laughs> um, and talk about how you're sort of drawing I guess, models and inspiration from those different industries in terms of unionizing games? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think the number one thing that comes to me is that whenever possible, it is absolutely essential that we organize in a robust wall-to-wall industrial model. Mm. Um, industrial union organizing, just with with no real exception or debate to be had, is the most accessible, most powerful most inclusive form of organizing that the working class has, you know, in front of us as an option. And, um, you know, I think that's definitely an orientation we take, especially because of the kind of rich diversity of different skill sets and backgrounds that is essential to our industry and to our medium. And I would also include tech in that, you know, there's a, a wide variety of people working in tech from all kinds of different backgrounds and experiences and in trades and disciplines. And so, I think having that bigger, broader, inclusive vision is really essential. And, you know, I think there's also the caveats of, you know, we live in the real world, right? We understand that the confines of U.S. labor law are fundamentally broken. They're deteriorated over, you know, decades of class struggle that we've unfortunately been losing. Um, And uh, we also, you know, like, for instance, with the Raven QA testers, we also understand that for the sake of, you know, the folks on the ground who actually need their working conditions improved, any union is better than no union. And any form of union is better than, you know, holding out for the most perfect form that we possibly could. And so, you know, these workers are organized right now. They won their union of just, you know, the QA department. It doesn't include a lot of those other crafts. But what we understand is that we got to start somewhere. We've got to get a handhold somewhere on our job, on our company, on our industry. And so it's a starting position. It's a place we can start expanding from and workers can start building power and solidarity from. And, you know, that long-term vision really is one of powerful industrial union organizing. That's where we need to be. And it's also where we're trying to, you know, get to in the real time in terms of different places in the games industry that we're organizing. Or if you look at Alphabet, you know, where, you know, we've got the Alphabet Workers Union organizing in that industrial model where there's both temp workers, vendors, contractors, and the full-time employees who, you know, are proper Google employees and so on. Um, we're seeing past just the confines of some of these legal fictions that these companies spin up to kind of, you know, offload responsibility for our conditions and things. Um, 
so I think we have to be able to think creatively in those bigger, broader ways when it comes to our organizing, but also having that day-to-day practical orientation where we know, you know, more than anything, we just got to start improving somewhere and start getting, you know, gains where we can. Yeah. I mean, the last time you and I spoke was for a couple articles I was working on last year sometime. And and you were saying like, my hope is sometime soon we can see a shop that successfully wins their union and wins collective bargaining and that that would be a place to sort of take root. And so um, it's nice to be talking <laughs> not that much longer in the you know grand scheme of things and saying like, oh yeah, so now we're seeing that, that seed at one of the big companies that has had a lot of labor issues over the past few years, we'll say. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty wild. Additionally, just how fast things have moved. And I think also how a lot of the rhetoric around organizing in our industry has shifted and just in the last year or two, even, um, you know, frankly, <laughs> organizing in tech and games, you know, it might seem like an odd comparison, but to me, I think back to the steel workers, you know, the 1919 steel strikes and, you know, kind of the fits and bursts of, you know, possibility over the course of decades. And then really in the thirties and forties with the, you know, the founding of the CIO and kind of the the boom of industrial organizing, you see the mass organization of a lot of these companies. Um, the reason why I think steel workers are kind of something that comes to mind is really like, if you go back and you look at, uh, you know, the 20s and things, when people are talking about the steel industry, you would see arguments that look hauntingly familiar to us in the tech industry, where people are saying, oh, well, you know, these big giant you know, pseudo-monopoly companies, they just can't be organized. They're too big. It's not possible. Um, You know, the workers, they've got better conditions than a lot of the folks in their communities. So there's no way they're going to risk their jobs for this and that kind of organizing campaign. Also, these companies, you know, have these unique kinds of uh, skills and and trades that are being employed that, you know, aren't in other industries. So of course, that's unique, and they're not going to be able to organize for that reason. And also, these companies now have uh, you know, uh, really tricky, complicated, individualized um, approaches to management and how they structure their workforce. It's impossible to organize them. And then, of course, you know, enough people put in the effort, you know, uh, to organize it and you see the mass organization of steel. And if if beforehand you look at statements from not just companies and executives, but also steel workers and, you know, union leaders at the time, everybody was saying, it's not going to happen. We're not going to see the mass organization of steel. And then if you look at the same people, even sometimes, you know, in the forties and fifties, it's inevitable. Of course we were going to organize, of course steel was going to fall to organized labor and this and that. Um, And so to me, like, I feel like we're starting to see a bit of an inflection point where um, I feel like for years and years, I've been hearing people say, you know, it's impossible to organize in games. It's possible to organize in tech. The workforce is so fractured and they're so skilled and they have these unique management styles and blah, blah, blah. The companies are too powerful. Google's essentially a giant nation state with more GDP than, you know, dozens of countries do, which is true. But we're also starting to see those handholds starting to take shape and workers starting to get power here and there. And I think before you know it, people are going to be looking back and be like, well, of course, tech and games organized. How could they not have, you know? And to me, that's where I sit right now. I'm constantly trying to just tap into that long-term vision where, of course, we're going to organize. It's the arc of history. It's the arc of, you know, labor and corporate relations, you know, this dynamic between workers and capitalists. 
we will be organized because we know our labor is deeply valuable. We have all the power because if our boss doesn't show up to our company, you know, for a month at a time, nothing's going to go wrong. But if we don't show up for a day, some of our companies fall apart instantly, right? Like you see actually this morning where uh, us in the Alphabet Workers Union, we were organizing these uh, Google Maps temp and vendor workers. And the workers announced this morning on their company communications that they were going to be taking a strike vote this evening because the company was refusing to improve uh, on, you know, return to office policy that was really going to be negatively impacting workers. And just the, the, not even the threat of a strike, but the threat of a strike vote toppled the boss within an hour or two, we had, you know, an immediate concession on the workers demands. And so to me, that's the energy I think we're trying to bring in our organizing, that class analysis, that historical analysis, that sense of trajectory that working people have to have in our hearts when we're thinking about the importance of organizing and why we do this, even when it's so difficult day in and day out. That's kind of our orientation to organizing. That's my orientation. And, you know, if there's like tech and game workers listening to this episode, I would encourage them to, you know, practice some revolutionary optimism, right? Even if it feels like you might be a little disconnected from where the rest of your coworkers are, we will get them there. It just takes time. It takes conversations. It takes organizing. It takes building those cultures of care in our workplaces and digging into, uh, you know, building a sense of agency and real power amongst us and our coworkers because we actually have it. It just lies dormant. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? I was um, reading Chris Brooks, and and this will be mentioned more in more depth later in today's episode. Um, that um, the piece that Chris Brooks wrote at In These Times about sort of what old school organizers got wrong and not seeing like the Starbucks and the the Amazon labor union win coming um, is that there are these moments when all of a sudden it becomes a movement moment, and that can also happen with unionizing and that, you know, that the CIO in fact happened that way, right? That suddenly a couple of wins, a couple of sit down strikes, and then it goes viral well before they had the term going viral, but you know, then people start imitating what they saw. And so it doesn't actually always work in the same sort of grinding miserable way. And sometimes you grind miserably for 10 years and then all of a sudden 20 companies across the country are doing the exact same thing you just did. Yeah. Or, you know, a hundred and some odd or however many Starbucks have unionized now. Right. I think it's over a hundred now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, I think whether we're talking about the long-term established labor movement um, or even I think a lot of newer you know, rank and file organizers and things like that. I, I think there's a real, a real missed opportunity for some meaningful analysis around what actually unlocks powerful organizing on a class-wide scale and an industry-wide scale. I, you know, I think we hear a ton about tactics, about good organizing conversations, about identifying social leaders. We, you know, talk about all these like, you know, tools that we have in our tool belt and, you know, I like, for instance, Jane McAlevey, you know, in no, no shortcuts, I'm rereading it with one of my worker organizers right now um, and studying it with, with them. And, uh, you know, she makes a case that, you know, the CIO used, uh, you know, these kinds of rich, deep organizing tactics. And, you know, then we see the heyday of the 30s and 40s and 50s in our labor movement, right? And that we've abandoned these tools and therefore our movement has fallen apart. But 
I actually don't buy that for a minute because if you actually have a solid historical analysis of things, you know for a fact that before the CIO, the AFL, the Knights of Labor, you know, whatever groups, uh, the Black Trade Unionist Movement uh, in the United States, uh, they were all doing deep organizing. They were all doing community-based organizing. So what's the difference between the AFL and craft organizing from the early days and then the boom that we see with the CIO or industrial organizing movement of the 30s, 40s, and 50s? The difference is a political orientation, not one of tactics. The difference is having that broader industrial vision, having that broader societal vision, tying that in with our labor organizing. Uh, you know, it's not just enough to talk about tactics. We have to have that broader, long historical arc in our minds when we're organizing and building our, you know, individual unions and our individual workplaces and so on. Well, and it's about organizing in the moment that you're in, right? It's about understanding the moment in the world where we are on the clock of capitalism, as my friend Dania likes to say. Yeah. And like also, you know, what these workplaces look like now. Like you're saying, you know, people talk about, oh, they have these idiosyncratic management styles. Man, every tech company ever just tells all the workers that they're a family and they'll put it up in the <laughs> or something, right? Like this is not particularly innovative or new or interesting. No, no, it's it's really, really not. And so I, I think, you know, the the kind of question mark of why does organizing suddenly pop off in Starbucks or why are tech workers suddenly on the move and blah, blah, blah. It's not as simple as, you know, these small day-to-day tactical questions of, you know, how the boss is handling things or even, you know, what's the nature of our organizing conversations. I think we have to have that bigger picture, like you're saying, of what are these broader political and economic and historical forces that are converging. And if we can bring a deep sense of education and training and culture building around where we stand in the world, where we stand in our class, where we stand in history, that's actually, I think, how you unlock some of the kind of cutting edge organizing where, you know, maybe not all of our coworkers are going to feel it yet, but that cutting edge, that vanguard, that kind of most, bleeding edge group of workers who are willing to strike out and try that new, you know, organizing the unorganized. um, That's how you're going to really get them. And once you get them moving, once you get them disciplined and yes, doing good organizing and, you know, applying the right tactics and things, once they get a handhold here or there, then you see a crack in the dam and we're able to just totally bust it open. Like we have with Starbucks and how we are, starting to in tech and games. Yeah, it's really interesting too to think about this, right? Because like when we're talking about sort of strategically important industries, you know, everybody talks about Amazon, right? Amazon is obviously important in 20 different kinds of infrastructure right now. Um, and games can seem like, oh, this is like entertainment industry, right? It's, it's, it's a huge part of the economy, but it's not sort of... Um, essential to the process of capital accumulation in the same way, I guess. And yet, as you're noting, these companies are all, they all have their fingers in all of these pies, right? That Amazon is also an entertainment company, that um, Microsoft is also an entertainment company, that all of these things are doing multiple things at once. And so um, when we spoke before, you know, you talked about the way that having a broad view of who and what is a tech worker is really important. Right. And that's why, you know, we organize not just software engineers and offices, but also, you know, data center technicians who break their backs pushing OSHA limits, hauling massive, you know, heavy 
equipment around and, you know, replacing electrical systems and stuff, right? Um, it's not just as simple as, you know, this or that group of workers. We have to think much more broadly about that, much more broadly, not just about the kinds of folks in our workforce, but also like you're saying, you know, the kinds of services and work and industry that these companies are engaged in, because you're right, Amazon is not just, you know, a logistics company or a tech company or just a media company. It's all of these things. It's a much bigger, complicated behemoth. Um, And I think there's that direct economic tie back in terms of why is it essential we organize at places like this, right? It's pretty obvious when you look at it that way. But I think also in terms of games, I would argue it's actually very, very crucial to capital accumulation if you chase like not just, you know, the economic part of political economy, but the political part of political economy, which is why those two fields of study should be unified. Um, (laughs) We understand the role that our industry, our games industry plays culturally, socially in enabling, you know, capital accumulation for a lot of these massive companies and, and for the United States. I mean, I'll just say like, you can't separate Activision Blizzard from Call of Duty and you can't separate Call of Duty from understanding you know, U.S. imperialism abroad and how we, you know, impact other working classes around the world, right? When the United States military's number one, you know, innovative recruitment technique is getting young children on Twitch following Marines who play, um, you know, Overwatch or whatever, you cannot separate the games industry from (laughs) empire and from capital accumulation and from these massive, bigger corporate juggernauts that run our society and you know, take over our politics and, you know, disrupt our ability to have meaningful democratic lives and societies, right? So it might feel kind of disconnected in some ways. Oh, we're just working on video games, right? This Isn't that something kids play? But actually it has a much deeper role, both in that political sense and that historical sense in terms of the economics being tied to tech and all these other industries, uh, among other things. And so it's really not an area where we should shy away from. It's not an area where, you know, organizers and, you know, progressive folks and folks on the left should avoid. We need to dig in there because actually there's a lot to be gained from organizing and building working class power right in the heart of the number one means of, you know, US war propaganda and, you know, building consent around, you know, invading other countries and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that the way that these things are all intertwined is a really important thing to be thinking about right now when like we see sort of the pop culture penetration of like the Amazon workers, right? Like part of what's happening right now is like people are like, oh my God, Chris Smalls is cool, you know? <laughs> um, like I, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of that though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's there's a real thing happening when people look around and suddenly it's like oh this is like the new hotness um i don't know i was in um i'm just back in the states from london and the other day i saw one of those like bernie sanders inspired balenciaga t-shirts like in the wild which is hilarious (laughs) um for people who are not whatever nerds like it's just this fancy designer t-shirt with like the designer's logo and it just or the designer's name and a logo that looks like the bernie sanders campaign logo and it's hilarious that that's a thing but there is a way that like the cultural cachet of these companies and the workers in them um is important too to thinking about how the story gets out i'm sort of reminded of um dana frank's 
telling of the Woolworth girl sit down strike, right? And people thought that like they were not the important ones. But after the Flint sit down strike in, in the auto plant, the young women who worked at Woolworth sat in and they realized very quickly that they were cute and that reporters would come talk to them because they were cute girls. And they used the thing they were hired to be, which is cute girls who will sell you things in order to sell their union to the public. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, you know, I think we, I think often people really underestimate the role of various social and cultural and, you know, art related dynamics on, you know, politics and class struggle. And, um, I think it's really essential. We, we don't lose sight of that, that, you know, cultural work, cultural production, cultural uh, development is deeply, deeply essential for building a powerful labor movement, for building a powerful socialist movement, for building whatever, you know, your particular, you know, thing is all about. It's really essential. You know, I, I think of, you know, folks like, uh, you know, Tony Bambara, you know, amazing black radical feminist who has one of my favorite quotes in the world, which is the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible right? The role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And I think that speaks volumes to like why art and culture and media is just so important that we, you know, organize in it and we we really sink our teeth into it because I think there's just a lot of potential um, when we inject class consciousness and class struggle and the language and tactics of it into these kinds of workplaces and industries. What could be more valuable than that? Yeah. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, um, what's next for the games workers? What's next for the Raven workers in particular? But what's next for sort of organizing in the games industry? Well, you know, what's next for Raven? I'll start there. They're joining, you know, their fellow game workers at Paizo and Vodio uh, in terms of moving into bargaining. That's going to be very exciting, very interesting to see how that process unfolds at a major company like Activision Blizzard. Um, But thankfully, you know, we've got workers, you know, organizing already around, you know, bargaining their contracts and keeping, you know, the management in line and winning the concessions they want at the table. And so, you know, there's lessons to be drawn from that. And so I'm, what I'm really jazzed about, even though there's going to be a huge, a huge uphill battle for these workers at Raven to win a successful, powerful, good contract that, you know, improves their day to day. I know that there's now a body of wealth of knowledge of experience now uh, with game workers and, you know, collective bargaining and organizing. And what I'm so excited about is seeing the connections that are going to be drawn between the bargaining at Paizo, the bargaining at Vodio, the bargaining at Raven, the bargaining at all the other game companies to come, right? And getting those workers together in a room and building a real collective understanding of what works and what doesn't and how we can take our organizing to the next level. And so whether it's for games or whether it's for tech, we've now organized at many, many places. And and again, you know, whether it's, you know, small tech startups or we've organized at the New York times or the, the tech workers behind NPR or workers at alphabet or Activision blizzard, whatever it is, we now have this wealth of experience, this wealth of knowledge in class struggle with this new industry, with these new types of workers to engage in the movement. And to me, the second stage is really starting to bring them all together and consolidate and articulate the lessons we've learned and start to move from a phase where we're just trying to get any kind of handhold on our industry 
get any sense of, you know, possibility, you know, off the ground. And now we're moving to this phase of, of, you know, proactive, long-term strategic planning, strategic orientation, strategic mapping and analysis of our industries and starting to figure out, okay, we've got this territory here and here and here and here. What's next? Where do we move next? How do we coordinate together to make this ever more powerful and ever more effective? And so, you know, that's my current orientation to, you know, the work we're doing at Code CWA to organizing games and tech um, and in other digital workplaces. And, you know, you were mentioning earlier in our conversation, right? We were talking just, you know, I think several months ago and and everything was still feeling kind of hypothetical in the future. I can't imagine what it's going to be like, not just a year from now, but five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, Right. So much has happened just since the start of 2021 when, uh, you know, the alphabet workers went public with their union with CWA. Um, so much has happened since then. So many units have won certification. So many actions have been won, uh, you know, struggle engaged in, bar- contracts bargained. Um, I just can't imagine what it's going to be like, not just after one year of that experience, but 10 years of that experience. I'm very, very excited for that. Wonderful. Anything else you want to add before I let you go? Uh, I'll just say, you know, if you're a worker in tech and games or, you know, some kind of digital workplace, reach out to CodeCWA, code-cwa.org, hit us up. You know, we get organizing leads in the dozens constantly. Um, but if you're interested in organizing, reach out to us. Okay. We have organized thousands of people. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You have, you know, peers in our industry who have done this before who can guide you and you can learn from uh, their experiences and you should reach out, hit us up, get in touch, get trained up and start talking to your coworkers and building, you know, the movement, not just, you know, in the abstract, in a, in a supportive way, but actually with you and your coworkers on the ground floor in your company, in your studio, in your startup, in your organization, because that's actually where rubber hits the road and the movement is actually built. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Emma Kinema of Communication Workers of America. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the pieces that we read and liked, but did not write. My pick for ARG is Prior Sex Work Haunts Employees Returning to Traditional Jobs by J. Edward Mourinho at Bloomberg Law. When the pandemic shut down and disrupted countless workplaces, many were forced to find new work after either getting laid off or just quitting jobs that they could no longer tolerate. And as people found all sorts of side hustles and temporary gigs to get by, some moved into sex work, a tried and true alternative job option during tough times throughout history. Now that businesses have been reopening and rehiring, though, people who previously turned to sex work are now finding themselves under attack by their new bosses who don't see their previous employment background as quote-unquote respectable. Basically, people are getting punished for trying to make a living by doing something to which bosses have a moral objection. And all of the gender and class prejudice that goes along with that. And now some of these workers, probably a small minority of the people actually affected by this issue, are suing companies for sex discrimination. 
to be clear, we're talking about all forms of sex work here, whether prohibited by law or not. Think about how many people have started creating content for OnlyFans when everyone was holed up at home during the lockdown, for example. Often employers who discover sex work in a worker's background will dismiss them as not fitting some vague standard of propriety, or they'll doubt their credibility or come up with another pretext for firing them. One employment attorney told Bloomberg that this pattern is especially prevalent among hospitality workers who were laid off en masse at the height of the pandemic and now face discrimination after returning to the industry following a stint of sex work. For example, quote, a former T-Mobile employee alleged that she reported a physically aggressive encounter with a male colleague only to have human resources question her about her account on OnlyFans, unquote. So not only could a history of sex work jeopardize your current job, but it could also lead to being denied basic rights when you try to address workplace abuse. Because being seen as sexually deviant, of course, means you obviously deserve to be victimized. Although sex workers are definitely not a protected class under federal civil rights law, the workers who have gone to court have argued that women and LGBTQ people disproportionately are employed in sex work in general, and also that anti-sex worker discrimination is rooted in gender stereotypes. One pending case in Oregon involves a former adult performer who claims, quote, her nursing school illegally discriminated against her based on gendered stereotypes, unquote. It's not surprising that both the sex work she did and the profession she aspires to, nursing, are both highly gendered occupations in which women often face constant pressure to conform to stereotypes as well as gender-based abuse and exploitation. Another example is Long Island Corrections Officer Randall Kotnick, who filed a lawsuit against the county in July of 2020, accusing his supervisor of harassing him by, quote, showing years-old clips of homosexual porn that Kotnick starred in to inmates he oversaw, unquote. Kotnick's case was eventually settled, but I wonder whether any settlement would compensate for the emotional trauma of that situation, in which a superior officer exploited an old porn film to humiliate someone at work, especially at a place like a carceral facility where the atmosphere is probably already rife with hostility and alienation, both for the staff and the incarcerated. Mourinho points out that these cases reflect, quote, a common trend. The more the sex work in question strays from societal norms about the way women and LGBTQ workers are expected to behave, the more likely it is to be used against an employee, unquote. This type of discrimination may also be unique to sex work. I can't think of another vocation that is so stigmatized that it could taint your future employment experiences for years to come or make you so much more vulnerable to being blackmailed or discredited by coworkers or bosses. Attorney Broderick Dunn explains that the problem is that courts haven't really accepted the concept advocates have always championed that, quote, sex work is work. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the chief federal body tasked with enforcement of anti-discrimination laws, hasn't provided clear legal guidance on anti-sex worker bias. Nonetheless, there are some common sense principles that can be used to adjudicate such claims. There could be a disparate impact claim if the worker is treated more harshly for past sex work compared to a co-worker with a criminal conviction on their record, for example. In addition, Pace Law Professor Shirley Lin said that a supervisor will usually need to show a legitimate reason for discriminatory action against a worker based on their past engagement in sex work, quote, other than personal judgment or biases about the type of work the employee does or did away from the work site, unquote. However, we can probably assume that these lawsuits represent an extremely small fraction of the overall pattern of discrimination that is now quietly taking place at workplaces across the country as people seek employment amid the economic recovery. Unfortunately, the stigma and criminalization of sex work will likely far outlive this pandemic. 
Still, maybe the social rupture caused by COVID has shifted attitudes around sex work. I mean, if so many people ended up venturing into this sector to make ends meet during the lockdowns, the number of people who've had experience with sex work has probably expanded. For those who have moved on to other careers since then, maybe their presence in more mainstream workplaces will start to chip away at that antiquated notion that sex work can't be as honest a living as any other. We were all wrong about the Amazon labor union, it seems. Everyone but Chris Smalls and the workers at JFK 8, that is. That most honest labor observers can admit to. But not all of us are capable of doing a deep dive story into why and how we were wrong about it with humility, while still coming up with answers that organizers can take away for future campaigns. Which is why I'm so glad that very dear friend of the show, Chris Brooks, wrote the piece that he did at In These Times. It's titled, How Amazon and Starbucks Workers Are Upending the Organizing Rules. And I also want to put in a plug for another piece on a similar topic in these times from Luis Feliz Leon, titled These Are the Workers Who Took on Amazon and Won. So Chris's piece begins with the worker militancy that has spread far beyond that one Amazon warehouse, with UFCW Local 400 organizing director Alan Hansen noting that workers are reaching out to the union not only in increasing numbers, but with a lot of the organizing to-dos already checked off and with a lot more bravado and a lot less fear. That lack of fear is contagious, of course, but it's also got particular roots. People getting fired during a union organizing campaign isn't having the same impact it had in the past, Hansen told Chris. Most of these workers are moving from one shitty job to another anyway, so they figure that they might as well organize to make them better while they are there, end quote. It's that lack of fear that was so striking at the Amazon warehouse, that confrontational attitude that made the campaign so compelling. And it's something that longtime organizers aren't used to. The organizing wave, Chris notes, includes Starbucks, Dollar General, Verizon Retail, Trader Joe's, and Apple retail stores, and of course, the media, where we work and where Chris works at News Guild CWA. According to the National Labor Relations Board, he writes, union elections were up 57% in the first half of 2022. So what's changing? The boss's power certainly hasn't changed, but something else maybe is. Chris writes, quote, Union organizers rely on a no-shortcuts, structure-based approach that is incremental and methodical. Organizers have endless conversations with workers, map the workplace, identify and recruit respected shop floor leaders to a representative committee, get a supermajority of workers to sign union cards, and then go public and file for an election. Ideally, workers are actively encouraged to organize around widely and deeply felt issues in the workplace and to aggressively confront the boss as part of the campaign, acting like a union before officially having a union. Under this model, you wouldn't dream of taking a vote to unionize or call a strike if you hadn't already assessed a supermajority of workers as being in support. I was taught to approach new organizing drives cautiously and to assume that if the boss holds captive audience meetings, threatens to close the workplace, and fires workers, the union should expect to lose at least 10% of its support. So unions typically file for an election with at least 70 to 80% of workers publicly in support of their union. Organizers fight hard to maintain the support they have under pressure from the boss, but don't expect it to grow. No one I know in the labor movement would encourage workers to go to a union vote with only 30% support on union authorization cards or to organize a walkout without overwhelming support. So it's a good thing the Amazon labor union didn't listen to me or anyone else I know, end quote. Instead, the ALU and Smalls built on early actions, that kind of walkout or acting like a union. They gained publicity and they didn't quit when workers, including Smalls, were fired and even arrested. An NLRB settlement with Amazon helped bring some level of neutrality into the workplace, but it really isn't that neutral. And the commitment of the workers, you can read more about it in Luis's article, 
to continuing to fight against the odds seemed to really make the difference. Chris continues, quote, Shortly after the NLRB announced the union election date, Amazon had Smalls and two other ALU organizers, both employees, arrested as they tried to deliver food to workers in a drop-off area of the parking lot. One of the many seismic shifts that have taken place in the wake of the 2020 racial justice uprisings, likely the largest protest movement in U.S. history, is the public's anger elicited by police violence. Video of the arrest was shared widely among the predominantly young and largely black and brown workforce. Amazon lost the election right there, Smalls told the Daily. Amazon workers saw me giving away stuff, food, whatever, every single week, every single day. So for them to see me getting arrested for giving them food, the people that were undecided or on the fence about the union, they were like, full on, we with y'all. That was the turning point. Every time Amazon made a bad decision, we would find a way to use it, ALU organizer Justine Medina told Current Affairs. We were just always looking out for that and for how to strategically use that against them. Following the arrests, Medina and others sprang into action. They printed thousands of flyers and handed them out the next morning. The arrests got people taking flyers from me who had never wanted to take flyers from me because a lot of people were kind of ignoring us. One of the people who stopped ignoring ALU after the arrest was Pasquale Uncle Pat Chioffi, a former dock worker and widely respected shop floor leader who was credited by Smalls and other ALU leaders as turning the tide in the union's favor. In four weeks, I must have flipped four to five hundred no's to a yes, Kiafi said at an ALU press conference, end quote. While the Amazon workers and Starbucks workers and others who are managing to win NLRB elections in an incredibly employer-friendly legal regime have relied, Chris notes, on tried and true tactics a lot of the time, they are also riding a wave of momentum, of movement moments that friend of the show Paul Engler and Descent's own Mark Engler wrote about in This is an Uprising. Paul Engler told Chris that moments of the whirlwind can't always be predicted, but smart organizers can build on them. And that's what happened in the moments of the American labor movement's greatest growth. Chris writes, quote, as Mary Heaton Vorse, one of the greatest labor journalists of the 20th century, noted in Labor's New Millions, her seminal firsthand reporting on the CIO drives of the 1930s, the newly formed organization's struggles were successful because of new tactics like the sit-down strike and consumer boycotts, and new federal laws that emboldened workers, but also because CIO's campaigns were capable of unleashing and absorbing widespread mass support for unions and their struggles. It cannot be said it was the CIO alone which organized the workers which stormed into its ranks, wrote Vorse. The young CIO did not have the means for such accomplishment. A great force like a force of nature had been pent up, partly by the open shop employers, partly by the inadequate form imposed by the AFL leadership. The CIO undammed a channel through which the desires and aspirations of millions of workers could flow, end quote. And so the desires and aspirations of workers are showing up once again, this time in the wave of Starbucks unions, largely driven by workers. There simply aren't enough staff organizers at Workers United to do the work that is being done this quickly. And it turns out that the workers are quite good at organizing. This kind of viral unionism is spreading more like the Black Lives Matter or Occupy protests. And while there's always a danger that it can fade, that union election wins won't turn into contracts, that the companies will crack down twice as hard, it's also important to note, as Chris does, that the labor movement simply can't grow at the scale it needs to without this kind of organizing. Quote, if the labor movement hopes to grow in leaps and bounds like it did in the 1930s, then it will require this kind of commitment to rank and file unionism. Workers teaching other workers and building democratic structures to support that initiative and development. 
The spirit of organizing is that anyone can learn to do it and everyone can get better at it over time through experience, Basile says. Workers just need opportunities to organize, to run trainings, to plan actions, to bargain their own contracts, to do all of those things that union staff do all the time, and to come together to discuss how to keep doing it better. If unions build structures that reinforce those conversations and experiences for workers, that can snowball into a movement. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on Amazon workers, Planned Parenthood workers, the tech industry, and the gig economy. Stay tuned as well for our next episode, which will be coming to you live from Chicago if you happen to be at the Labor Notes conference on June 17th. We'll be hosting a live show at 5 p.m. Friday evening at the conference on the topic of working time with guests to be announced. We will also be on a panel earlier that day about labor podcasting, and Michelle and I are each moderating an additional session. I will be talking with essential workers, and Michelle will be talking about China. If you can't make it to Chicago, the episode will be dropping the following Friday, June 24th. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to all of you who listen to us. Share us with your friends, tweet about us, Facebook about us, all those annoying social media about us, tell your friends about us, and write to us, of course, and share your stories. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you are using to get your podcasts. It helps us find new listeners. And special thank you once again to those of you who support the show financially. Labor journalism is not free. Our work is also work, and it is difficult and often thankless, just like everything else that we talk about on this show. So it really, really helps for those of you who can to give us what you can every month to keep us being able to bring this show to you, to keep us being able to go get on the road, go to labor notes, do other things, meet people, and make the connections that allow us to keep doing our work. So if you can, over at the Descent website or now at patreon.com slash belabored, we have some great gifts for you if you are so inclined. Thank you so very much. If you want to share your story of working or organizing, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a warehouse worker or a computer programmer, garment worker or Uber driver, we want to hear from you. And you can tweet at us, too, if you really must be on Twitter at hashtag belabored. Thanks again, as always, for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.